0: According to His promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are still in Philippians one six, and uh, wrapping up the last of what we're looking at here about the day of Christ. Uh, in verse 6 it's called the day of Christ Jesus. In verse 10 it's shortened to the day of Christ. And uh, we're fine with that. We know we're talking about the same thing. Uh, in the immediate context and in the, in the uh, scope of Paul's uh, doctrine. The day of Christ is the day of Christ, it's not the day of the Lord. And uh, we've spent uh, a couple of sessions making sure that we're clear on what is the day of the Lord and what is the day of Christ and why can they not be the same thing? Because they're clearly not the same thing. Even though um, there's good dictionaries out there and commentaries out there, there's good men that uh, will tell you oh it's all the same thing. And that breaks my heart. So um, in any event, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Ask the Father to bless our time in His truth this morning, and uh, we'll get right to where we left off on Wednesday. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for Your truth, rejoicing in Your faithfulness. Father, uh, calling upon Your faithfulness to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts. Father we need to feast upon your truth this morning and and uh, we're thankful that you have made such such faithful provision. So father, teach us your truth, build us up in the faith, strengthen us in the inner man. We thank you, father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse 6 is a positive verse and verse 10 is a positive verse and everything here is exciting as it relates to the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident, or I am persuaded of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, and this uh, is a beautiful promise. It has a context pertaining to the church, not to Israel. It has the. It, it falls within the scope of blessing. It falls within the scope of eternal rewards. That is that our service in time is going to be recompensed with uh, reward and glory in eternity. Each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we understand that a day is coming, and I pray that it's today in which that trumpet sounds. And we are caught to be up face to face with Jesus Christ. And uh, we receive the, the consequences for our fruitfulness here. And that's, uh, that's all caught up in, in terms of the rapture, in terms of the judgment seat of Christ, in terms of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything we have to look forward to uh, in our eschatology as a part of the, the body of Christ, as a part of the church. The church has a different eschatology than Israel. Have you noticed that? The last days for the church are entirely different than the last days for Israel. What does Israel have to look forward to in the last days? Wrath, judgment, war, enemies, death. Not, not, uh, not positive things. Now through that they'll be humbled and through that they'll come to repentance and through that they will look upon Him whom they crucified and uh, they will call upon Him to be saved. And that's what it's going to take to bring about Israel for their future kingdom, for their future glory. And that's an entirely different eschatology than the church eschatology, see. And I think if we can think in these terms we'll do much better, uh, do much better with it. So um, let me look at this and then we'll uh, advance to the slide where we left off. I'm tempted just to teach everything I taught on Wednesday because I had a lot of fun with that. But um, we want to make sure that we understand the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. The day of Christ is not a pure synonym for the day of the Lord. Now here's where it does overlap, let me tell you. It can't be today unless the trumpet sounds and we get called home. If it is today, if the trumpet sounds and we get called home, then we can say yes, we have then arrived at the day of Christ. And, uh, and so we will stand before the judgment seat and we will receive the reward and the recompense and all of those things. But the day of the Lord does not have to start today. The day of the Lord does not have to start tomorrow. The day of the Lord is the coming tribulation of Israel, It starts. it's, it's awaiting, it's presently on hold, that uh, Daniel gave a prophecy of seventy sevens and sixty-nine of them are done, and there's one more seven yet to come. And that final seven yet to come doesn't have to start tomorrow morning. If the rapture comes today, that does not start week 70 tomorrow. And uh, there could be a, a period of time, a transition leading up to that, and there may require some uh, some work. I don't think it'll require a lot. I think Satan's ready to go now. But still there's going to be some kind of a ramp up for him to get his Antichrist in, in place and to get uh, get all these things done. So uh, it's not a pure synonym. They are after the rapture though, and that's, that's fair. It's fair to say that we can't enter into the day of the Lord because for us the day of Christ starts with the rapture followed by the, the judgment seat of Christ and followed by the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's all church-oriented for us in the day of Christ. day of the Lord is for Israel and the nations and it's God's wrath upon this earth for Israel and the nations. We spend a lot of time looking at subpoint point A and going through the prophets as it uh, references the day of the Lord. The, the Old Testament is not the only book that references the day of the Lord. The New Testament also references it and when it does it spotlights the fact that we don't have to worry about it. We do not have to worry about it. Okay? And so um, I'm not going to repeat everything we taught on Wednesday, I would urge you to go get the MP3 file. Uh, But when you're looking at these passages, let me take just five minutes, when you're looking at these passages in 1 Thessalonians 5, see it for what it is. See it for what it Oops, is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, recognize that it comes after chapter 4. And there's a reason for that. Chapter 4 is our rapture chapter. Chapter 5 is the day of the Lord chapter. We are looking forward to the rapture. We don't have to worry about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to come upon them. Okay? And so you've got this beautiful rapture doctrine in First Thessalonians 4. Uh, I've, I've read it so many times you're probably tired of hearing it. But uh, I mean you can just rattle it off yourself. That uh, the Lord Himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, thus we shall always be with the Lord, right? That's our rapture doctrine. That's our blessed hope. And uh, this message here in this chapter is such that we're told at the end, therefore comfort one another with these words. And it's a wonderful message. Day of Christ is a wonderful message. It's happy, it's blessing, it's joy. There's uh, nothing to be fearful of. Then we cross into chapter 5. As to the times and the epics, brethren, now notice, what is that? You understand, rapture has nothing to do with the times and the epics. Rapture, you can't hang the rapture on a calendar. You can't hang the rapture on any kind of uh, Jewish eschatology. There's nothing in the Old Testament that speaks of the rapture. Rapture is mystery. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 calls it mystery doctrine. That we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Rapture is mystery doctrine. Has nothing to do with the times and the epics. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well. How do they know that full well? Because it's all throughout the Old Testament. What we did the last two weeks, studying the day of the Lord. Studying the, the times and the epics. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while, notice, they are saying, look at all the theys and thems in this chapter, because it's not for us. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So we're talking about them. We're talking about the day of the Lord. That's not for us, that's for them. It uses language like labor pains. Well, Jesus used that language in His Olivet Discourse. Talking about the beginnings of birth pains, but that's just the beginning, the end has not come yet. That's Jewish eschatology, that's not church eschatology. And then in case you you didn't catch the drift in verse 3, He pounds it in in verse 4, but you, brethren, you're not them. You, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're not going to be left behind when the trumpet sounds. You're going with the rest of us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right. So, chapter 4, chapter 5, in that order for a reason. Same thing with 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Somebody had written them a letter. We get clues to that here in. uh, verse 2 where it says do not be quickly shaken from your composure be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Would that bother you? If I got up here in the pulpit this morning and said by the way I was wrong there is no rapture Uh, we're going through the great tribulation in fact we're in it right now. Okay would that bother you? Well not you guys you've been too well taught you know better you would laugh at me and say get out of here. Okay? But they got disturbed. And they were quickly shaken from their composure. They were disturbed. And you might expect, yeah, this early church, first century, probably 52 AD. And um, they don't have a lot of New Testament written yet. Okay? They don't know a lot about the rapture other than what Paul taught them for the three weeks he was there. All right. There's also some other clues, too, I think, uh, at the end of the book uh, when he signs his name. In 3.17, uh, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He Normally he used an amanuensis to write most of the scroll, but then when it came to the signature, he would write it himself, and it was always a very large signature because he had such terrible eyesight. Uh, but I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. All right, And so that's kind of a clue. Uh, I think 3.17 gives us a clue that 2.2 is really talking about a, a counterfeit letter. That they received that was supposedly from Paul, but it wasn't from Paul at all. Alright. Now, backing up to verse 1, then, 2 Thessalonians one. I said five minutes, right? Okay. Um, real quick. This this passage proves that the rapture of the church precedes the tribulation. It proves a pre-tribulational rapture. And skeptics will dispute it, they'll they'll split hairs, they'll say, Well, not really, not really, not really. Okay. All right but combined with everything else we have from John 14 to 1 Corinthians 15 to 1 Thessalonians 4 to Philippians chapter 3 to everything else we have on rapture doctrine, this text pinpoints it. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episynagogue our gathering together to Him. All right? That is the rapture of the church right there in verse 1. It is a lengthy, uh, verbose, wordy, um, rambling, comprehensive, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't keep going, it is a, a long, wordy description of the rapture, is it not? I mean, the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our episunagoge, are gathering together to Him, that's rapture of the church that you not be quickly shaken from your composure. So with regard to the rapture, don't be so disturbed if somebody tells you that the tribulation is here, that the day of the Lord has come. For it cannot come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first. If you've got the word apostasy in there, understand it's departure. And I think it, it, it references the rapture. It's another term to describe the rapture. And so verse 3 says the tribulation can't come until the rapture happens first. It says so right there. The day of the Lord cannot come until the departure comes first. What departure? Well, in this context, what is it? In this context, it's the, return, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. And it's called a departure. To me, that's the simplest thing in the world. But people try to complicate it because they're bent on, on denying all rapture doctrine anyway. They're trying to equate the rapture with the second advent come to a post-tribulational thing or even trying to come to an all-millennial view anyway. And so at that point, if, if they're abandoning a little hermeneutic, why are we even debating? Okay? Come talk to me when you've got an accurate hermeneutic. As far as that goes. So, you know, when we're talking about a departure, what are we talking about? You know? And if we've spent uh, some time talking about something, you know, maybe talking about an upcoming missionary trip, and we're talking about a journey to the Ukraine, and we're talking about, you know, and then if that's what we're talking about, and then I reference a departure, what are you going to think I'm talking about? I'm talking about that. Yeah. I'm not going to be talking about some kind of a, well, you know, over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says at the end of the church age that we're going to have some apostasy in the end times. That, uh, you know, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times men will fall away from the faith, paying attention to demons, uh, deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. You know, towards the end of the church age uh, uh, there's going to be some apostasy around. And because of that they take that text and they force it into here. But this passage has nothing to do with any of that. All right. So let no one in any way deceive you, the uh, tribulation cannot come until the rapture happens first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Antichrist can't even be revealed. He cannot be displayed publicly until we're gone. So if if he's alive today, don't waste your time trying to identify who he is. Don't waste your time trying to figure out, ooh, I think it's this guy. I think it's that guy. I think it's, you know, whatever. I think it's Trump. I think it's Obama. I think it's, you know, when I was in high school, it was Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666, you know, because six letters in each of his three names. Yeah. You don't remember that? Yeah. Everyone was convinced. Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist. And there was Gorbachev with a splotch on his head. And they said, ooh, see, that's uh, the Soviet guy with the uh, splotch on his head. And that has something to do with the fatal head wound that Revelation talks about. And, uh, just silly stuff. Okay, Here we are 30 years later. So um, Antichrist cannot be revealed until the departure happens first. Because he's under restraint presently. Without the, restrainer, without the restrainer gone, Satan is not free to unleash his Antichrist upon this world. We want to be clear on that. Finally, Second Peter 3. Did this in five minutes. Second Peter 3. And, uh, you know, I, I think folks that are struggling in their eschatology run the risk of committing this sin. Of joining with the mockers. As it says in verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And I think some poor eschatology is not just sloppy hermeneutics. I think it's mocking. I think it mocks the scriptures. And I think it substitutes our wisdom for God's wisdom. And they come with their mocking saying, where is the promise of his coming? Well, it's been so long, it's just not going to happen. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so they doubt the rapture. I mean, come on, it would have happened by now. They say the rapture can't be true doctrine. Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. And so they camp on these things, and then they get to be mockers. And they're substituting their finite understanding with God's program, and He's not slow. Don't think that He's slow, He's patient. He's patient. That's what chapter 3 is centering on here. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness okay are you counting slowness on your calendar he said quickly it's only been a couple of days but the thief but the day of the lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar the elements will be destroyed with intense heat the earth and its works will be burned up that doesn't sound fun (laughs) okay are you afraid of that is that something to be fearful of And it's interesting, too, because we're not... Notice it says in verse 12, "...looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat." Uh, The application, though, exhorts us to personal diligence. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Okay? And that's a powerful question. You know, if God is the sort of God that is going to destroy everything, what sort of people ought you to be serving a God that's a sort of God that does that? Okay, that's the application. Not that we're afraid of destruction, not that we're going to face the day of the Lord, but that's the sort of God, the sort of God that is going to unleash the day of the Lord. That's the sort of God we serve. What sort of people ought we to be? But we're not looking for that. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, we're looking to the other side of the judgment, just like Jesus was looking to the other side of the cross. So, that finishes that. Uh, When the New Testament epistles reference the day of the Lord, they reference it as something the church doesn't have to look for. I don't have to look for the day of the Lord. I don't have to look to try to unmask Antichrist. I don't care. I don't have to look for all these things, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and birth pangs and whatever. I'm not sweating any of that because we're going to be gone. Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. We are rescued from the wrath to come. And so when the New Testament talks about the day of the Lord, it does so and says, You're in the body of Christ. Don't worry about it. That's not for you. And so, you know, I ask sometimes, I don't remember if I've done it here, I did in Ukraine, and I ask, um the Lord gave warnings to Noah to build an ark and gather some animals because wrath was coming, judgment's coming. Do you guys ever worry about that? Do you ever do you ever build an ark? Do you ever gather some animals together? Are you do you ever get worried about Noah's warning? And and it's ludicrous. No, nobody worries about Noah's warning and no one's building an ark today. No one's no one's uh gathering out. No one's doing that because the passage doesn't apply to us. That judgment's over anyway. It's in the past. Well, just because the tribulational judgment's still yet future, it's no less irrelevant than Noah's judgment. It doesn't apply to us. And since it doesn't apply to us, even though it's still future, I still don't care. It doesn't apply to us. And so I don't worry about Jericho's destruction, okay? I'm not hanging red ropes out my window so uh, I can be spared from Jericho's destruction, and I'm not building an ark so I can be spared from Noah's destruction. And I'm not worried about Babylon's destruction. I'm not worried about Jerusalem's destruction. You see, none of those are relevant to us in the church age in the body of Christ. And so for the folks that keep insisting about, well, you're just a rapture sissy, or you're just a weak sister, sister or you don't, you're just afraid of tribulation. You're, you're afraid to lay down your life for Christ. And they, they view it as this big tough guy thing, and, and they're, they're ready for the tribulation, and we're just these rapture sissies. Okay? And all of that's just it's stupid. Because they're not as tough as they think they are. They're like Peter. They'll deny him three times before the rooster crows. And, and besides that, we're not destined for that. It's not a matter of fear. Not at all. Alright. Now the New Testament epistles reference another day, the day of Christ. The Old Testament never references it. The Old Testament has no clue about the church anyway. The church is a mystery. And so there's no Old Testament prophet that could say anything about the day of Christ. But Paul says a lot about it. And uh, the day of Christ is always positive, with a positive anticipation of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And uh, so let's look at these and understand, you know, we'll see if we can spot any uh, armies of the earth, we'll see if we can spot Jerusalem surrounded. We'll see if we can spot blood rising up to the bridle of the horse. Uh, you know, there's certain things that we know are going to happen on the great and terrible day of the Lord. We'll see if the sun, moon, and stars go dark. Okay, we'll see if men are crawling into holes in the ground. We'll see if you know. I mean, there's a lot we know what's going to happen in the tribulation. Seals are going to be broken. Trumpets are going to be sounded. Bowls are going to be poured out. Right? Seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh my. We know the tribulation, okay? They like that in Ukraine too. For, for some reason, I don't know, the Bible students in Kiev have a frame of reference for uh, different things. It's kind of fun. Um, but notice, all of that tribulation doctrine, if you're solid on the day of the Lord, if you're grounded in the times and the epics, then you, like them, like the Thessalonians, have no need for anyone to say anything to you. You are grounded in your Jewish eschatology. And so, when we start talking about the day of Christ, we realize, hey, you know what? This is a different animal. This is something else. So, First Corinthians one eight, and uh, in a church context here, notice um, to the uh, this is uh, Paul and Sosthenes as his co-author to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Royal family of God in the church age. Not true for any Old Testament saint. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. Abraham had a calling, but the individual Jewish people, they weren't saints by calling. We are saints by calling. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This is as, as verbose a definition of church age saint as you could ask for. Nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with Gentiles. It's body of Christ worldwide. And so uh, he's thankful. One of his, uh, Paul likes to start with thanksgiving. And uh, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Clearly, body of Christ, church age. So that you are not lacking in any gift. They had all 20 of the the church age spiritual gifts. The the 11 permanent gifts, the 9 temporary gifts, starting with the apostle that founded them. They had them all. You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> okay this demands a pre-tribulational rapture of the church waiting eagerly that concept of imminency requires that there is nothing that has to happen in between second advent can't happen until a whole list of things happen first including sun moon and stars falling and armies surrounding and a treaty that's broken halfway through and other things uh, it's antichrist displaying himself in the temple as being God giving out a mark you know I mean clearly none of that has happened yet So Armageddon can't happen today. The second advent can't happen today. There are signs, dozens of signs, that have to precede Jesus Christ coming and landing on the Mount of Olives and splitting the mountain north and south. The second advent cannot come until a whole lot of other signs happen first. And so with a post-tribulational view of things, nobody looks for Christ. But with a pre-tribulational rapture, we look for Christ. We are looking for Christ day by day, moment by moment because that's the next thing we expect to see. That's the next thing on our prophetic calendar is the trumpet sounding and Christ descending. So waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been highly amused talking to some mid-tribbers and some post-tribbers try to convince me that they're waiting eagerly for the rapture of the church. And uh, how eager can you be when there's a list of 50 things that have to happen before the, uh, the blessed hope can happen? Okay? They can tell me they're eager, I can tell them I'm more eager. <laughs> Alright, now notice, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end. Positive statement. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless. That's uh, quite a bit different than Israel. Israel is going to be trampled. All right. The city is going to fall. The women will be ravished. The I mean, the, it, the great and terrible day of the Lord is, is a polar opposite of what we're seeing here. This is all exciting. Confirmed blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the day of Christ. It begins with a rapture, it, it continues with the, the judgment seat of Christ, and it culminates with the, with the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's everything we have to look forward to in our glorification in Christ. That's the day of Christ. And it has nothing to do with the day of the Lord. Still in 1 Corinthians, go over to chapter 5. And in the man of incest here who was kicked out of the church we have some interesting statements that get made, and he says in verse 4 in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh not only is he getting kicked out of the church but he personally is being given in permissive will to the hands of Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and I don't know if you recall when we taught that, the idea is you know, when we're stacking up gold, silver, and precious stones, that's one thing. If we're stacking up wood, hay, and stubble, and that's all we're stacking up, God and His mercies, you know, do you ever think of that? Do you ever think how He mitigates the damage? You ever think when he assigns the sin unto death to a believer that he's, uh, he's short-circuiting the, the process whereby what I'm saying is he keeps at least a little bit of gold, silver, and precious stones there so that it's not all converted to wood, hay, and stubble so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus? He'll have some kind of reward at the judgment seat. Because as as black as his soul is now, I mean, how how darkened does your soul have to be to commit this kind of sin, right? And in whatever else, think how much worse it's going to get if God allows that to continue. Gangrene only gets worse if you if you don't chop it off. You, you know, think about scar tissue of the soul and blackout of the soul, and different different concepts there. And so it seems to me that this divine discipline here for the destruction of his flesh to be handed over to Satan. Um, you know, Satan was able to afflict Job with boils head to toe, he just wasn't allowed to kill him. Okay? I think Satan had the capacity to kill him here, if that's what it takes. And thankfully uh, the man repented and before Satan could kill him. And, uh, but we know because of Second Corinthians he gets brought back into the church. I wonder how disfigured he looked. <laughs> I wondered, you know, I mean how, how rough was that to be uh, physically afflicted by uh, Satan himself? In any event, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Nothing in there about armies surrounding Jerusalem, nothing in there about the great and terrible day of the Lord. It has to do with a believer in the church age being disciplined in time, of course, but being rewarded in eternity. And that's, uh, that's nothing that Israel could have ever dreamed of. Second Corinthians one fourteen. 2 Corinthians 1.14. And he uh, says in verse 12, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. See, Paul had a rule of thumb. I, I adopt the same rule of thumb. <laughs> you know, And that rule of thumb was grace. Grace, 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 grace. Paul says here, by the grace of God, in the grace of God we've conducted ourselves. And so whatever else, whatever mistakes we made along the way, sure, we made some mistakes, but we we were trying to walk in grace. And uh, if we we made wrong decisions, well, we made wrong decisions. But the the purpose of our heart, the conscience of our heart, we wanted to express grace. And uh, sometimes we did well, and sometimes we didn't do well, but we we were trying to walk in grace. Then he says, For we write nothing else to you <clears throat> than what you read, 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 read. We write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. See, they rejected first Corinthians. <laughs> okay. And then he had another letter, a painful letter, a sorrowful letter in between first and second Corinthians. And that evidently didn't go over so well, or Paul didn't think it went over so well. So now he's sitting down to write Second Thessalonians, or Second Corinthians. And uh, he's convinced that they're going to reject this too. But he says, hope you at least finish the book. Um, Then verse 14, just as you also partially did understand us that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Again, is that great and terrible day of the Lord? that tribulation? No. This is the evaluation of the body of Christ. This is the rapture the judgment seat of Christ after the rapture, and this is where we get to assemble up to heaven, and, uh, and believers and their pastors and, and one another, we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm proud of you guys, and you're proud of me, and this is, this is the evaluation that happens. And Paul says, I'm going to be proud of you guys, and you're going to be proud of me. Of course, right now you hate my guts, but we'll, we'll fix that. <laughs> he says, I'm going to come to you. Anyway, enjoy teaching this one back in the time that we taught this. So um, he says in this confidence, in this, I think it's persuasion there, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped uh, on my journey to Judea. He says, man, I, I wanted to spend so much time with you I was going to hit you guys twice. Coming and going. No, not anymore. Okay, Change of plans. Because uh, we got we get issues, and and they needed to repent. That's why he's writing Second uh, Corinthians. But anyway, centering in on the day of our Lord Jesus, I accept that the day of our Lord Jesus is an equivalent statement to the day of Christ Jesus, to the day of Christ. Uh, It is what Paul is speaking of, of this day. It's not the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord Jesus. It's the day of Christ. It's the day that the body of Christ has to look forward to when we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ, when all of the petty little disagreements that came up between brothers are gone. They're done. We have confidence as we stand before Him. And that's, uh, that's kind of a neat thing to look forward to also. All right, Philippians 1, 6 and 10 and Philippians 2, 16... Of course, 1 6 is what started this whole thing. Um, he who began a good work in you will keep on perfecting it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then uh, he has more prayers, not just Thanksgiving prayers, but future prayers, intercessions. He says, This I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, not touchy feely emotionalism, okay? in real knowledge and full discernment. All discernment. That's love. Agape is doctrinal. It's not emotional. Okay, They may have some emotions that get brought along with it, don't get me wrong, but emotions are not in the driver's seat. And we'll talk about that. So this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We want to finish our course up to the rapture of the church, up to the day, up to the day of Christ. The rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, where all of these things are then uh, recompensed with our reward. So, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Every reward we receive at the judgment Christ, uh, seat is for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's His glory, it's His praise. Because it's by His grace any of this even happened. 2.16. Philippians 2.16 This is what it means to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's living the experience of your Christian walk. The experiential sanctification that follows the positional sanctification. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's what it means. This is our Christian walk. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. This is what we're talking about. This is our sanctification in time and that confidence of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. If your lifestyle is no different than the unbeliever's lifestyle what are you doing? <laughs> you know? All right, why? How do you appear as light in the world if you're just as dark as they are? What's different? We're talking about how, the, how you make your decisions, how you conduct your life, how you run your family, how you run your household, how you conduct yourself in the workplace. Everything. If you don't appear as a light in the world, if you're just as dark as the next guy, why is that? It's not the will of God. That's not uh, allowing God to work in and through you of his good pleasure. And notice uh, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, it's not day of the Lord, that's not armies surrounding Jerusalem, that's not sun, moon, and stars darkening, that's not No. In the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In the day of Christ, Paul was looking forward to seeing the Philippians and their full reward. Looking forward to watching as they stand before the the Bema and receive their reward. Alright, so that's the, the context there. In all of these just like we saw with the rapture great rapture passages nothing was fearful nothing was uh war oriented there was no blood there was no armies uh there was no uh, wrath okay it was all what we have to look forward to following the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ and and to me it's uh it's like night and day and the idea of trying to blend the two have at it okay show me okay i'm willing to be convinced but uh I think you've got a tough road to, to uh, try to put all those together as one great big event. And then uh, somehow having us caught up to the clouds and then drop back down and, and man, what happens then? How does that work? What's this operation yo-yo? We up and then down and then um, and then, you know, and then theologically there, that doesn't you can't follow through with that either. If every living believer is glorified then there's nobody left to procreate in the millennium. There's nobody left to to populate the millennium with uh, with uh, future unbelievers. If uh, if if we're all transfigured at the or transformed, if we're rapture transformed at, at second advent, that leaves no mortals left on earth uh, to uh, to populate the millennium. Simple. All right. Any questions on that? Wednesday night I'll be glad to take any questions on that. I, we didn't even touch some of my favorite. Rapture passage—we didn't talk about First Corinthians 15 and that twinkling of an eye. You know, if, if that's if that's uh, the same as the day of the Lord, then wait a minute. You know, then why are they, why do they care about these armies? <laughs> they just got twinkle of an eye glorified, and they can go out and, and just conquer everything. They're they're immortal at that point. They've cast off mortality, put on immortality, and who cares if there's armies surrounding? Let's go, let's go kill them all. <laughs> or uh, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. That's, by the way, why we have to meet him in the clouds, why we have to meet him in the air, because he's not coming to the earth. He's just coming to fetch us and take us back to his place. That's what a groom does when he goes to get his bride, right? And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let me tell you, he's not been on the Mount of Olives the last 2,000 years. He's been in heaven. And that's where he's taking us of the rapture of the church. Does that make sense? Everyone following that? If not, ask me. On Wednesday, we'll talk about it. On Wednesday, we'll answer those questions. Because to me, this is our blessed hope. And it's sad, uh, the folks that have lost it. All right, let's talk about thinking then. Let's get into verses 7 and 8 and deal with some thinking. I love these verses. Bugs me the way sometimes they get translated, but we'll fix that. (laughs) Point 9 in the outline. Paul's righteous thinking. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking, grounded in grace. So his feelings reflect the affection of Christ. We want to understand that. What's in the driver's seat? What's pulling the wagon? Okay? Use, use whatever metaphor works for you. Um, Paul's thinking is righteous thinking. Grounded in grace. So his feelings, and by the way, this passage does have a term for feelings, and it's not the one translated feelings. His feelings reflect the affection of Christ. That's what it's about. And that's what I want my thinking to be. I want my thinking to be righteous thinking. I want it to be grounded in grace. So that my feelings reflect the affection of Christ. I want your thinking to be righteous thinking, grounded in grace, so that your feelings reflect the affection of Christ. I don't want anything phony. I don't want phony emotionalism that reflects the uh, views of this world. Because more damage has been done in the name of phony affection, in the name of emotions. Emotions. And uh, because emotions will compromise thinking. Oh, but we were in love. As if that excuses 12 stupid decisions. Okay? It's, I'm telling you. And so we have intellect and we have emotions. We're designed that way. And, and, and I, I think when I was growing up, my church was a hyper-doctrinal, hyper-intellectual, um, Vulcan-type church. Okay? Spock would have fit in very well, in that um, any emotion was wrong. The slightest little bit, there was no legitimate emotion. And maybe it wasn't taught like that, but that's what I picked up. Okay? And uh, and any kind of, well, that's just a reactor factory. That's just emotional revolt. Okay? Grow up. Get doctrine. And it's interesting, because when I first visited Austin Bible Church, Ralph Brown was the pastor. I was just an army guy coming down from Fort Hood. And um, Ralph was teaching Philippians. Okay? And I'm, I'm learning some stuff. And it sounded, a lot of it sounded like I was growing up with. A lot of it sounded like Colonel Thiem and Baraka or John Eichmann or Ken Jensen or some of the solid uh, Hall of Fame doctrinal pastors I know. And uh, it was verse by verse. It was exegetical. It was categorical. It was doctrinal. But as Ralph was teaching it, he was saying, you know what? You're not out of fellowship if you're having a bad day. If you have emotions, guess what? It's because you're human and you have emotions. Jesus had emotions. Now here's the key. We have intellect, we have emotions. These are the facets of the soul. And you want one to drive the other, not the other way around. Don't ever put your emotions in the driver's seat. So that you know your mentality sits in the passenger seat or the back seat or the trunk, or you kick it out entirely. Okay? Keep keep uh, your thinking in the driver's seat. And then emotions can come along as well. Of course they can come along. Not only can they come along, they're going to be enhanced. They're going to be enhanced. They're going to be better emotions than ever before. And we're going to see that. So verse 7 and verse 8, and uh, I don't know how far we'll get with this, but these are long verses. And you look at how long we spent in verse 6, and goodness Verse 7 is longer than verse 6. But he says it is only right. That's righteous or just. Okay? Our thinking must be right. This is like when you confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He would be unjust if he didn't forgive us our sins. And our thinking would be unjust if it's not grounded in grace. So uh, it is just for me to think this way about you all. We do have feelings in this in this passage, but the feelings don't show up until verse eight. God is my witness, how I long for you. That's feelings, with the affection. That's feelings of Christ Jesus. So we do have feelings in this verse twice: the longing and the affection. That's verse 8. The shorter verse, by the way. The verse that follows verse 7. In verse 7, it's not feelings. In verse 7, it's thinking. And we'll give you the vocabulary, we'll teach you all this. Uh, It is just for me to think this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart. That's not feelings. That's thinking. The man thinketh in his heart. It's thinking thinking. And that's why we need our heart transformed. That's why we need that innermost being to be shaped by the Word of God. Because the old heart, the unbelieving heart, that's a wicked thing. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked who can know it? So, uh, but the new heart we have in Christ, the transformation we have through the Word of God, this new heart that's being shaped, it's a place of uh, thinking. Since both in my, it's it's the uh, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is a critical judge of the, what? The thoughts and the intents, the attitudinal precursors to thoughts of the heart. Not the emotions, not the touchy-feely, not the sentimentality, not the longing and not the affection but the thoughts and the intents of the heart. All right, I have you in my heart. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul giving him a Valentine's card here? <laughs> Will you be my Valentine? You know, if somebody is in your heart, what does that mean? And don't uh, answer that biblically. Don't answer that culturally with, with how we use language today. Okay. Because today we it's, it's it's very emotional, and it's very so. If you have a if you have somebody you're romantically interested in, and and they're pretty and they smell nice and and and, and, and so what do you call them? They are your sweetheart. Okay. Why are we using heart like that? Why are we using heart like that? The Bible Okay? But our culture does. And it's been doing it for a long, long time. And I think that's intentional. Satan's the greatest language pervert out there. Turning words around. Because, I mean, after all, love is love, right? Perverting language. Twisting things. So, having in, in your, it's like inviting Jesus into your heart. All these expressions with heart, they're not biblical expressions. But thinking. I have you in my heart. Why? What is it? So, when you think heart, would it help to take out, just put cardia in there instead of heart? Or would it be helpful to think and translate it with core? The core? Because the Bible will talk about the heart of the earth. And it's not an organ that pumps blood, it's the core. It's the core of the earth, the core of the being. That dividing asunder of soul and spirit is what? That's your core. That's the that's the center of who you are. That inner man. The innermost being. Right? It's called the innermost. And so when I diagram the heart, that's where I put the heart. That's where I put the cardia. So, more on that. Okay? In fact, can I do this? Maybe? I haven't done this for a while. I keep forgetting I have a pen. Let me uh, come back to... This. Oh, it's not going to work. Really? I used to use it all the time. I wonder if I killed the battery on it already. Alright, I was going to draw pictures for you. Maybe Wednesday. This is technology helping us. Let's talk about thinking though. I was going to draw... You'll just have to imagine, okay? A big circle, that's your inner man. Split it in half. Soul on one side, spirit on the other side, okay? Sometimes the terms are used interchangeably, but not always. Sometimes they're distinct. And if they are distinct, they've got a dividing asunder between them. There's a, there's a, a barrier between them. Kind of like your heart has a left and right side. Your brain has a left and right side, okay? And so the, the, the soul-spirit has a soul side and a spirit side, and then what's in the middle? What's at the core? That's where I put the cardia. That's where I put the heart. Because the heart is not the soul. The heart is not the spirit. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All right. So um, anyway, Uh, I have you in my heart. I have you at my core. Now, who are the closest people to you? Not necessarily emotionally speaking, and this is what we're trying to get to. In the angelic conflict, who's the closest to you? Or for soldiers on the battlefield. When you develop a esprit de corps and you develop camaraderie on the battlefield because you're veterans and you've been through it and uh, you pulled somebody out of a foxhole and they pulled you out of a foxhole and, and you're getting shot at and, and uh, all these things are happening. That's the angelic conflict of what we deal with. And Paul says... I have you in my heart. Actually, we'll have to discuss the variant on this because it's not even a variant. The Greek could be read either way. You have me in your heart. Paul could be telling them, you have me in your heart. Or he could be telling them, I have you in my heart. And grammatically it's it's valid to translate it either way. I think it's best to say I have you in my heart, but either way. And it's not for an emotional basis. It's not because you're pretty and you smell nice and I'm in love. Okay? It's a thinking process. Because since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers of grace with me. Fellow partakers of grace with me. Think about it you and I are going to have maximum fellowship with grace-oriented believers. And we're going to have very limited fellowship with legalistic believers. Possibly none at all. It may be if, if we encounter a brother in Christ that has so much legalism and so little grace, man, it, it's tough. You say, well, I love you, brother. You know, get some grace. Um, because in the meantime, I'm struggling. I am absolutely struggling to have the koinonia fellowship. And this here we have sun koinas, fellow partakers, partakers of grace with me. It's a compound. And we already looked at it with your participation in the gospel. Remember that in verse 5? Your fellowship participation in the gospel. Here we have fellowship, fellowship in uh, grace. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are Soon, fellowship partakers of grace with me. And on the basis of that, fighting those battles together, on the basis of that, of of walking in grace and, and all the ministry they had in common, he says, I have you in my heart. So this is righteous thinking, and it's grounded in grace. And then the feelings that come from that come out of the thinking that is... Grounded in grace. So you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness. How I long for you all. Now we're talking emotions. So there's no question. There's a lot of emotion in verse 8. How I long for you all. And this is, uh, this is yeah. Sometimes it's not rational. <laughs> Why do you have those feelings? Okay? You want it to be rational. And that's what this passage is talking. So I long for you all with the affection, the splanknon, the tender mercies, with the uh, affections, the affections across. What is it? What is it that causes affection? What? I, somebody tell me. <laughs> no, just kidding. What is it that sparks affection? What is it that it's you know universal from Kenya to Philippines to Ukraine to whatever? I mean, here's a little baby, <laughs> and you go. Oh Cute little baby. Okay. All right. Affection. What is it that sparks that if you have an ounce of humanity that sparks affection? And is it possible to train those affections? Are we expected to control those affections? Are there other affections that we have to guard against because they would be harmful? Well, what's wrong with that? If they're affectionate, a lot is wrong with that. And so, again, I'm just kind of introducing this. We'll, we'll dig into the meat on this on Wednesday. Um, we have to be cautious. It's not wrong to be attracted if something or someone is attractive. Okay? Right. I mean, duh. You're looking at something and then that, that looks nice. Right? Or it smells nice or whatever. Okay? There are pretty people. And, and it's not a sin to acknowledge that beauty. Not a sin. To be to identify that something is attractive. What you, then what do you do with that? What do you do with that attraction? Are you cycling doctrine? Are you thinking the Word of God? Are you thinking it through? Are you... Um, Guarding against the unhealthy attractions, when you stop to say, "Wait a minute, yes, that's a beautiful woman, but that's not my wife." <laughs> All right, that's somebody else's beauty. That's somebody else's, uh, and I'm not going to take my mind there. I'm not even going to. I'm not going to go down that road. Okay, that's what we're going to try to train our minds to do. What we try to train our young people to do. What we try to train anyone to do. See? And I think we lie to ourselves or we lie to our kids or we lie to whatever. When we, when we try to tell them that those emotions are bad, those feelings are bad. Oh, you have an urge, that's sin. Wait a minute. No. You have an urge because that's what you're built to do. You have, a, you have emotions, you have feelings, you have attractions. Okay? But apply the doctrine so that you exercise those attractions in the right way. You don't abuse those attractions. Alright. So we'll deal with that as well. We'll talk about the uh, verb for thinking. We'll talk about the oh, the righteousness and the just as. We'll have to deal with that. And uh, the righteous thinking as we get into our phreneo. What is the heart anyway? We'll talk about all those things. So Wednesday night, Lord willing and rapture pending. We've got a lot in front of us here to handle verse 7 and 8. Thank you Father for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we're calling upon Your faithfulness uh, between now and then to be thinking over these matters and considering what Your Word might say. And Father, um, I appreciate the way that You've laid out things for us and in uh, touching every facet of our lives from our uh, relationships to our families to our uh, politics to everything, Father, that uh, all things necessary for life and godliness have been provided for through the wisdom of Your truth. We want to live that truth out Day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Fellowship